my marriage is going to end horribly. I was married on January the 24th, 2003, on the coldest night of 2003 in Oxford, Georgia, in a tiny little meeting house uh, that was very drafty. And I was marrying the prettiest girl in all of the state of Georgia. And she came down that aisle in all of her glory. And we came to the front there and we coveted together before, those, before God and those 150 or so witnesses. We kissed each other as a sign of the oneness that marked the impending marriage. This past January, we celebrated 20 years of marital bliss. I know a lot of people say that's true, but it's true for me. Uh, the reality is, is marriage is hard work. Uh, premarital counseling, go ask Henry and Maddie, who are taken through premarital right now. And Marriage is hard. Marriage is work. A lot of up days, a lot of bad days, a lot of difficult days, but it's been bliss for me. 20 years in, one of the greatest joys of my life to be married to my wife, but it's going to end horribly because one of us is going to die. And whoever it is that dies before us, more than likely we won't die at the same time, but uh, whoever it is that is left, if that happens, that person will have to navigate the remain, remaining years of their life apart from that oneness that has come to define so much of our life. And so I think uh, that picture is a good metaphor for so much of our world, both the joys and the difficulties. We have a lot of good in the world, right? So much good, so much that we enjoy, but there's also so much sadness. And like my marriage, it will end horribly for all of us because we will all die unless Christ returns first. And this morning's sermon means to explain these two realities. It means to explain why death and darkness mark so much of our world and our lives in particular. And it means to explain how death and darkness can be overcome with life eternal. And in this, I will explain the unique worldview that Christians bring into the world, such that by the end, we should be able to explain how Christians answer the most difficult and most beautiful parts of the world. Big idea this morning, grace restores nature. Grace restores nature. Again, we'll consider that idea from uh, the book of Romans there in chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the book of Romans happens after Jesus has died, buried, and rose and ascended. And uh, it's in what we call the New Testament. The chapters are those big numbers, bold numbers. The verses are those little numbers. We'll be in chapter 5, 12 to 21. One pastor calls this paragraph the most difficult paragraph in the entire book of Romans. Uh, and so, yeah, pray for your brother, right? So I don't intend to answer every single question that this paragraph introduces. However, I do intend to answer the big idea. So two points this morning, two points. Death reigns in Adam, life reigns in Christ. Death reigns in Adam, life reigns in Christ. The first point will explain why things are the way they are in terms of the death and the difficulty. The second point means to explain how we might return to the way things were supposed to be and will soon will be. First point, 
Death reigns in Adam. So let me just set up this uh, passage right here in Romans 5. Uh, we're, again, in chapter 5. So basically, we're kind of showing up. We're dropping in 30 minutes into the lecture. We missed the first 30 minutes, as it were. So in other words, uh, we uh, Paul's already addressed a bunch of stuff that he already assumes at this point. And so he starts at the beginning of the letter in chapter 1. He talks about creation, and then he moves into salvation. And the biggest point that he just finished making, Paul's writing to Christians in Rome. That's why it's called Roman. Uh, The biggest point that he just finished making in chapter 4 is that justification, that is being declared righteous before God, justification before God comes by faith alone in Christ. He just finished making that. You can see that at the end of chapter 4, verse 25. Take a look at that. Referencing Jesus there, he says, uh, who was delivered up for our trespasses, and here's the Easter part, and raised for our justification. If Jesus doesn't raise from the dead, he's no different than anybody else. But because he did raise from the dead, that means his death on the cross was in fact sufficient for the sin of those that trust him. That then explains the very next verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been, he's writing to the Christians, that's the we, since we have been justified, how? By faith. We have, notice the present tense, we have it, we have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification, righteousness that is before God, comes by faith through our Lord Jesus. And then he goes on to say in chapter 5, verse 10, uh, he comes in and explains this further by telling us when we got this faith in this justification in Christ. It happened, chapter 5, verse 10, while we were enemies. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Okay, that's, that then sets up the context for 12 to 21. 12 to 21 is, gonna, is going to explain more precisely how that works, how justification by grace through faith in Christ works. It's going to explain that more precisely. So here we go. Here's what Paul's going to do here. The Apostle Paul's the author, again, writing to the church in Rome. Here's how he's going to explain it. He's going to compare two real historical people, all right? Two real historical He's going to explain Adam and Jesus. Uh, he will explain that through the sin of Adam, death came into the world, and then he will go on to explain that justification comes by union with Christ. Death through Adam, life through Christ. Or as I read this morning, Adam walks into the grave, Jesus walks out. That's what you're going to see. That's what he's going to say. What Paul is saying to to us in this passage is every single one of us in this room and outside of this room and every planet and the rest of the planet, everyone is either in union with Adam or in union with the last Adam, Christ Jesus. Everybody is. Whichever union you are tethered to, Adam or Christ, is the union that not only explains but determines the narrative of our lives both now and forever. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all are made alive. If your life is more marked by death, that means you're in union with Adam. If your life is marked by life, it's by Christ, defined or united to Christ. So let's look look into Adam. Here we go. Verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world... Through one man, 
and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. All right, here we go. In this one verse, Paul explains why things are the way that they are in the world today. Christians believe that the biggest problem in the world is sin. Sin is defined most basically as rebellion, rebellion that is against God. And Paul says back in Romans 1, he describes sin as worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, rather than God. Sin is rebellion against God in favor of the created. That's the problem with the world we Christians understand. So, And in this passage, Paul says that that sin came into the world through one man. And that one man that he's referencing is Adam, which was the first man that God created. That's more clear if you drop down to verse 14. You'll see it then. More on Adam in a second. But sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so how did death then enter the world? Well, through the one man's sin, rebellion against God. So the one man, first man, sins, death then comes. That then leads to the third step. And so death spread to all men, that's to all mankind, because all sinned. So just to review the argument, sin came in how? Through one man, Adam. So since sin came in, therefore death came in. And since death came in, it spread to all mankind. Well, how is it we know that's true? Well, because all sinned and all died. And so at the base of it, what's wrong with the world is sin, is rebellion against God. You get that right, you fix death. And then life begins to come up in the world, which is the argument that he's going to make in a second. But Let's just think for a moment more about this historical reality of sin and death entering into the world through the one man. Back at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 2, the first human being God made by which we are all descended from is Adam. And I realize that when I say that, some of you in this room think that's absolute nonsense, that there's, we all are descended from one man. So I'm not going to take the time to list out all the reasons for why Christians believe that Adam is the first real historical person. I'll only say this at this point. Jesus Christ was most certainly a real historical person who unequivocally changed the world for good, and he believed in Adam as the first real historical person as evidenced by his commitment to the truthfulness of the Old Testament. I could say much more on that. We could say more about that, but I'll just leave that there for now. But nevertheless, Adam was created in the image of God. He was put in the Garden of Eden to rule over that garden and subdue creation in a manner that imaged the God that made him for his glory. Eve was his helper, and they were instructed to enjoy all of the trees of the garden except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They disobeyed that command from God by submitting to creation. I'll say that again. They disobeyed God by submitting to creation when they listened to the serpent and ate of the one tree they were not supposed to eat from. That was the sin that's being referenced here in chapter 5. That was the sin that entered through the one man. Adam's choosing to rebel against God by serving creation and listening to the serpent that led him to eat of the tree that he was not supposed to eat. And that sin, friends, was like the one drop of poison in a cup of clean water. It poisoned the whole thing, poisoned the whole world. It brought death to what was otherwise life in the world, what God made very good. 
And the reason why sin brings death is because God is life. Right? So God has no beginning and no end. His word, Yahweh, means I am. I have always been. So to rebel against him is to separate oneself from the God of life. So in other words, if the power cord rebels against its design and disconnects from the socket, death comes to whatever it was powering, right? So it is. Sin brings death, uh, and so it brings that death because we're separated from the God of life. Theologians call humanity, Adams as uh, humanity's representative, theologians will call him our federal head. And they use that language of federal head because it helps illustrate uh, what happened in Adam. Just as an ambassador can single-handedly represent an entire nation, how they can represent an entire federal country, so Adam represents all of humanity. He was our ambassador, as it were. His rebellion then brought destruction to us all. Therefore, the world that we come into was full of sin and death. So the world, friend, is not neutral, as so many of our secular friends might want to suggest. Every single human being comes into the world with an operating system that is already set to sin and rebellion and to death. And so that precious little baby girl or boy of yours, I probably don't have to convince you, was set to rebellion and even death when they came into the world. And that's because of Adam's sin. Are those kids, are we as bad as we could be? No. But our basic nature is not to to be basically good. Our basic nature is basically bad. Again, not as bad as it could be. And this happened because of Adam's sin. His sin brought death, therefore we all die. And, And we all naturally then sin ourselves. We then naturally have death reigning. And if you don't believe me when I say that uh, when we come into the world that we're basically bad, not basically good, I'll ask you one simple question. If you're not buying the argument that we're basically good, we're basically death, not basically life, I'll ask you one question. Did anybody ever have to teach you to lie, cheat, or steal? No. Right? I'm, I'm pretty sure your mom didn't tell you when you were two, like, all right, listen, you want that train, right? Let me tell you how to get over there and just beat them up and go take it, right? You just did it. You just walked over there and pow, off it goes and took the train, right? You just did that. Right? This explains why so many of our first words are mine or no, right? <laughs> and alternatively, we, we flip it around, right? This also explains why we have to be told, Johnny, think of others as better than yourself, right? So it is. Universal sin leads to universal death in our hearts, spiritually and otherwise, and even physically, which led to a basic operating system of sin and death in the world by us all. We all sin and we all die because Adam sinned and brought all of it in, and we do the same. This is why the world is so full of death and darkness on every continent and every span of history. Sin through one man which brought death and death through sin because all sinned. And this death that is so pervasive, guys, is just that. It's total. So it includes the death that sin and death brings in includes three things. It includes spiritual death, right? That's the separation from God. Spiritual death, we're now separated from God. So we lack peace with our maker. We lack that righteous nature. 
But instead, we have a more sinful nature, so we have spiritual death. And then secondly, there's physical death, right? That's separation from the body. God made us body and spirit, so now the death that comes, there's physical death. And then third, there's eternal death, which is eternal separation from God, both body and spirit. So this sin and death that comes into the world includes spiritual death, physical death, and eternal death. And this, friends, is what is wrong with the world. This is why things are the way that they are. I should mention, as I talk about this, a lot of our city has a very different interpretation of why things are the way they are in the world. Our city would have a very different interpretation of some of the things that I just said. And I say a lot of people in our city because I think we often forget that most people in wards 7 and 8 of our city would hold a Christian worldview. We tend to forget that. But yes, uh, in the rest of our city that we live in, wards 2, 3, 4, 5, right through there, they would say, no, you know, you preacher, man, you got it all wrong. You're being all religious, right? That's not what's wrong with the world. Sin brought death into the world. That's not what's wrong with the world. Some, they would say, they would say that the, uh, it's not that, but what is wrong with the world is education. It's a lack of education. That's what's wrong with the world. There's too much ignorance in the world. The more people uh, were more informed about math and geography or literature and philosophy, then life would come. We just got more education. So justification for them is found in getting people more informed. Justification by education. That's what they would say. But then there would be others who say, well, no, not so much. It's more a lack of science and technology. That's the problem with the world. It's a lack of science and technology. We don't understand nature good enough. Uh, So once again, it's kind of an ignorance problem with a slightly different emphasis. It's an ignorance related to the natural world that's the problem. Justification for this group of people would be in research and technology. Justification by research and technology. Get the right answers and employ the right technologies, and then we can overcome all of the bad and life will come. But then there would be still others that would say, no, the problem with the world is in relation to economics. If more people made more money... Uh, If more people made more money, then we could purchase what we need. Uh, Poverty would be out. Crime would be alleviated. And so it's a lack of finances that's the problem. And so therefore, justification for this group would be found in money. Justification by money. But then there would be another group that say, no, it's not so much those things. Uh, They would say that the problem with the world is bad government. Bad government. So the problem here is leadership in systems. If we had a better government, then the the bad would go away and then life would come. Justification for this group would be seen in politics, which explains why there's such a frenzy in this country every four years. It's going to come if you haven't seen it already. The thinking for this group would be like, if we could just get all the bad folks out of there, right, and get all the right folks elected, then all the bad would go away and life would come. But then finally, there are those in this context, in our context, that would tell us that the problem is actually in authority in general. That's the problem with the world. It's in authority in general. Right? Paternalism, colonialism, religion, whoever it is that's trying to impose ideologies upon us, they are the ones that are restricting us. We don't need authority. We need to be individually free, they would say. And by free, they would mean free from any external authorities. Uh, We need to be our authentic, autonomous selves, external authorities. They're what's wrong with the world. That's the problem. Justification then for those in this camp would be seen by diminishing all external authorities that make demands upon us and then let us be whoever it is we want to be. And so whether it's education, science and technology, economics, bad government, or external authorities, friends, all of these 
as a final authority, would reject the notion that the Bible straightforwardly teaches here in Romans 5.12 that sin through Adam and death to all because all sin. They would say, no, that's not the problem. And in their place, they would suggest all these alternative problems. And I should be clear, right? We as Christians, save that last one of rejecting authority, we as Christians think all of these other things are good things. Right? I promise you, half this room, if you're a visitor, half this room is probably in science and technology. If I said that was bad, they would crucify me. They'd run me out of the room. Right? So we love these things. We're part of these things. In our church, we have educators and people involved in politics and people involved in science and technology. These are all good things we mean to be part of. We think it's good and right to be part of, but we don't hope in them as the final solution. That's the difference. The gospel of Jesus Christ uniquely defines the problem with our world in ways that all these others do not. All of these explanations, friends, have a few problems, at least a few problems. First, they only deal with a sliver of the human condition. Education only deals with the mind. Economics only deals with finance. Science and technology only deal with material matter. It doesn't touch on critical things like love and joy and contentment. Secondly, though, none of these answers deal with God. They never actually mention God. It's either explicit or assumed atheism. Their their estimations of the problems and their solutions aren't seriously considering the reality of God behind these things. They're not doing theology, as it were. Which leads to the third problem with these explanations of of brokenness in our world. None of them deal with death. Not fully and finally. This is the most fatal flaw because it shows that these explanations don't go nearly as far as they should. Even prolonged life cannot answer any problems for eternal life. So because they don't deal with God and because they don't deal with the greatest enemy of all, death. And so no matter how much education you have, no matter how much technology you have, no matter how good your government is or how void of authorities you are, you and I are still going to die. Last time I checked, death rate's still 100%. And so it's because of these false fates and these broken pots that I believe, by the way, uh, explain so much of our mental health problems in our nation. We've tried to shove God off into a corner and then increasingly trusting in ourselves with what's wrong with us. Never realizing that no matter how hard we try, we are never going to be able to overcome the greatest enemy of all, which is death. One study has even shown that clinical depression is rising at, quote, an eerie synchronization with rising prosperity. One author asks in response to this, why is it that no matter how much we have, no matter how good we have it, we struggle to still feel satisfied? Well, maybe the answer is giving more thought to the problem. Giving more thought, going deeper. Maybe maybe we should give more thought to our relationship to God. Maybe we should think more about God. Maybe we should think more about even death. Maybe, in other words, Paul's right. And our sin against God and our death as a consequence, maybe that really is the answer. Maybe death is spread to all because one sin which led to all sinning. And if they are, then the solution to this problem is going to have to come from outside of us. It's going to have to come externally to us. Not from within. It's going to have to come from without. That leads us to the second half of Paul's comparison. Death reigns in Adam. And secondly, 
Life reigns in Christ. Or as I said earlier, Paul walks into the grave, Jesus walks out. Life reigns in Christ. Take a look at verse 12 there again, Romans 5, 12. In most of your Bible, there's a dash at the end of verse 12, indicating that there's a pause in Paul's line of thinking, all right? That dash indicates that he's going to kind of go off into this kind of parenthetical line of thought from verse 13 to 14. That's what happens. Right? In verse 13 down to 15, he kind of pauses his thought and then goes on this greater excursus to explain this comparison between Adam and Jesus. But if you were to slide all the way down to verse 18, you can see how he closes the loop of his thought from verse 12. So if I were to read them together, it would go like this. Look at verse 12. <clears throat> Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, Verse 18, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. See the connection? One sinful act by Adam, our federal representative, threw us into the world of sin and death that we participate in, such that we now, again, all sin, we all die. But one righteous act by the last Adam, Jesus Christ, leads to justification and life for all that believe. In verse 14, again, you can see there that Adam was a, quote, type of the one who is to come. Adam, in other words, was a pattern, a shadow, a prefiguring of Jesus in the sense that that one man making one act brought about universal effects. So in Christ, the last Adam, his one righteous act leads to universal justification and life for all that are united to him by faith. In Adam, death reigns, but in Christ. Life reigns. Adam walked into the grave. Christ walks out. Paul will go on to make this very same point at the conclusion of his argument in verse 21. Look at that. This is kind of his, he's kind of summing it up before he moves into chapter 6, which, by the way, they didn't have chapters in the Bible. We kind of stuck those in there. But anyway, at verse 21, he sums up this argument. Verse 21, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, putting my words on this, grace restores nature. But you ask, well, Nathan, what exactly was Jesus' one act of righteousness that leads to justification for all men that believe? You describe, Nathan, what Adam did that brought death. What exactly was Jesus' one act that brings universal justification to all that believe? Well, this is the gospel that we've been singing about, that we've been praying, that we're rejoicing in this morning. The gospel that explains the active obedience of Christ. When he came to the world, God took on flesh in the form of his son, the second person of the Trinity, lived faithfully the active obedience of Christ. He obeyed every single command. He never did wrong. The active obedience of Christ Fully God, fully man, so that he could reconcile God to man. The act of obedience to Christ, to obey every single law of God. Which, by the way, is why he, while one man is able to make universal atonement for all that believe, is because he's the only one that obeyed his active obedience. And then there was the passive obedience when he gave himself over to die. So the cross is central to us as Christians because this righteous man, Christ the Lord goes to the cross as the lamb and he lays his life down 
And he has this amazing transformation, translation where we go from he, the righteous one, takes his obedience and then is able to transfer that righteousness on the one that believes. And then he takes in the other direction our sin upon his own back. The great exchange it's called. This is amazing, right? So Jesus receiving all of the punishment, right? All of the sin, all of the the wrath. This is why Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? He's being forsaken on Nathan Knight's behalf for my sin. And then he gives me his righteousness so that I, the sinner, can be declared justified, though I'm a wicked man. Amazing. But friends, that's not the whole story. He dies because sin brings death, right? That's what we said. And so he goes into the grave and he goes in there three days so as to make sure to the world he did die. And he rose. He rose three days later, indicating, as Paul says back in Romans 5, 4.25, he was raised for our justification. He shows that that sacrifice was, in fact, sufficient. Therefore, he did overcome sin and death as is evidenced by his resurrection, which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if he doesn't raise from the dead, then we have nothing to be happy about. But because he did, we have everything to be excited about. Praise the Lord. Paul sums it up in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him, not in us, not Nathan, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And isn't it so appropriate, guys, that this one act of justification for all who believe, isn't it appropriate that it was also accomplished at a tree? Adam infected us all with sin and death at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And for all who believe, Jesus grants us justification and life for all that believe at the tree of Golgotha, where he hung. And to be clear, hopefully if it's not clear by now, let me make it clear. Grace, when I say grace restores nature, grace grace is not just a thing. It's not just stuff. It's a person. It's Christ that does it. Christ restores nature. He is grace personified. And the life that Christ offers, as Paul says, is much more. You see it all through that passage. It's much more because it's more than what Adam offers. It comes by the grace of God. In Christ, we have spiritual life now, though it's undeserved. That's the grace. The deadness of my spiritual life is awakened now to see and to savor the truth, right? Whereas before it couldn't. By grace, through faith in Christ and in his gospel, I now have invigorated spiritual hungers for Christ and his righteousness. My moral deadness is able to be overcome because God has planted his spirit from within me. Paul will even go on to say in Romans 6, right after this, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Right? Therefore, he can then go on to say in verse 12 in chapter 6, let, that's so important, circle that word, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Apart from Christ, I can't, they would make me be a slave. But in Christ, I now can let those passions not rule because life rules in me. This is amazing truth. 
God has declared those united to Christ by faith. He's declared us that believe righteous. He declares us justified because we're clothed in the robes of Christ's righteousness, not our own. He has given us the life of his spirit from within. Therefore, now spiritual life reigns, not spiritual death. This now is our identity. And not only that, but grace through faith in Christ's death, burial, and what? Resurrection, right? So I also not only have spiritual life now, but I also have the promise of eternal physical life. It's got to, right? If it's going to be actually overcome, the last Adam. We celebrate Easter because it was on this day, as we read, Romans 4.25, that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification bodily, not spiritually. Jesus doesn't only grant us spiritual life, he grants us physical life that is in keeping with his eternal life. Adam's sin introduced death, therefore we sin and die. But for all who repent and believe on Christ, our biggest problems are dealt with. That's why it's called the gospel good news. We have present tense. We have spiritual life in Christ and we have, we have the promise of eternal physical life with Christ. Whereupon his return, we will worship our resurrected savior in resurrected physical bodies on a resurrected earth and be with him forever. This is the good news of the gospel. And therefore, friends, you can see why someone might call this paragraph the most important paragraph in one of the most important books of the most important book called the Bible. In other words, if you understand Adam and you understand Christ, you're able to understand the hardest parts of the world and the most beautiful parts of the world just by understanding those two historical men. It explains how everything is went wrong and how it is wrong and it explains how it's made right. The question remains for us in this room. Which union are you in? Which one are you united to? You, We all are originally united in Adam. But are you united to Christ by faith? You are either still in union with Adam and death reigns in you, spiritual, even eventually physical and eternal. Or you are in union with Christ and life reigns in you. Those are the two options to every person on planet Earth. This is why Christians are devoted to the work of missions and church planning. You reject this, friends. If you reject, if you're here this morning, you're like, you know, an interesting thought, Nathan, but I reject that notion of this union either with Adam or Jesus. If you reject that, friend, then you only create more problems with more questions and fewer unsatisfactory answers that don't go far enough. And so who are you in? Who are you united to? Where, in other words, is your faith? In Adam or in Christ? In other words, is your faith full and final trust? Is it in man or is it in the son of man? Does death or life define you? You'll know by who or what you are putting your full and final trust in. If you are united to Adam, trusting in man, death will reign spiritually and eternally. You'll not have an appetite for the righteousness. You'll not have appetites for God, but instead you'll go on hungering for the things of the earth because that's where your trust is. You'll serve creation, not the creator. And eventually you'll die and the death that now reigns in you will reign eternally in you apart from God. But if you're united to Christ by faith, true and lasting faith, if you're repenting and believing upon Christ alone for salvation, trusting and treasuring him, then life will be reigning in you, spiritually now and eternally forever. 
You'll have spiritual appetites that terminate in the resurrected Lord who works his righteousness out in you. Manifesting a life that, though imperfectly, yet progressively exudes that love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness, goodness and self-control. You'll be more increasingly, still imperfectly, exuding that as you look to Jesus. You'll increasingly long to see and savor the one that changed you, the one that defines you, the one that you're going to spend eternity with. That will more increasingly be your appetite. The grace of Christ will progressively restore your nature to how it should have been and one day will be in the new heavens and new earth. That's why when you look at Jesus, that's why Jesus so universally changed the world because when you look at Jesus, you see heaven coming to earth. Changing. That's what his miracles are doing. All of those miracles, guys, it's not just affirming his deity. It is that, but it's more than that. It's saying this is what life is like as me. It's reversing the curse. Well, friends, I told you at the beginning that my marriage was going to end terribly. Well, that's not entirely true. Because God has so graced me with faith. I didn't earn it. It was a gracious gift. God has so graced faith in me, and God has so graced faith in my wife, that yes, on the day in which I or she dies, it'll be horrible but we will only weep for ourselves that remain here. Because the dead in Christ immediately are led to the presence of Christ. We are led to the one that Paul will later say is our life. And there, eventually, her and I will meet together again. United no longer by our marriage, but united together in something far deeper, far enduringly beautiful. Body and spirit, our union with Christ will never spoil or fade. More than that, Scripture teaches us that it will increasingly for eternity increase. You imagine that? Eternal joy ever increasing at the foot of our Savior that gives us life together. She and I will be together along with all of the beloved in Christ from every tribe, tongue, and nation, together as one, worshiping our risen Savior, telling Him and singing to Him about the life that we have in Him forever, together as one. Friends, the the very same thing that United Nations wants to have but never can achieve, because it can't, Christ does. It was made for Him. It's not designed to. Christ is designed to. Adam cannot restore nature, not ultimately. He's the one that destroyed it. You and I cannot bring in restoration. We're the problem. Christ, the second and final Adam, can and does every day by the power of the resurrection. Grace restores nature, not man. And grace, friend, is found in Christ. The one that trampled over death by death. So you all who are trusting in Christ... Christ can come awake. You can come awake. And if you're not trusting in Christ today, maybe even now, maybe it's already been happening in you, you're coming awake, coming awake, coming and rising up from the grave. For Christ is risen from the grave. Soon enough, Christian brothers and sisters, we will sing with all of the saints, O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? You lose. And the whole world will know it. And we will gladly come together and sing that song. And so, beloved, stand in the light. Our God is not dead, but he is alive. 
He is ruling in heaven and he is ruling in the hearts of his people. Life is coming and all the more will. Rejoice, beloved, and enjoy him now and forevermore. Amen. Let's sing and pray together. Amen. Lord God Almighty, we love you. We thank you, God, first that you're honest with us, that you're clear about where death, where death comes from, our own rebellion against you. We don't have to guess. You just put it right there. Forgive us, God. And thank you that you're not only honest about sin and death, but all the more that you've given us a solution in the Savior. We have hope because of Christ. Life does now and forever will reign in Him. Grace restores nature. It's not our own will. And we thank you that grace is found in your Son, of whom we worship and adore this Sunday, Easter Sunday. We love you, God. Help us to love you more and be enlivened all the more. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.